Hello, this is Mary Walter, and I am here with Brian Buford. Hi, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be. And we are so excited today because we have a fantastic guest for you. Today, we're meeting with Leah Swan. Leah is the Chief Human Resources Officer and the leader of Enterprise Transformation for the Children's Place. Leah has a terrific track record of leading change and innovation as a senior leader at companies including Ross Stores, Gap Inc., Williams-Sonoma, and the Walt Disney Company. Leah brings a unique perspective to her work with a global vision developed as an Aussie working in the U.S., and we are so glad to have you with us. Welcome, Leah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Brian and Mary. I think just the accent alone could keep me engaged all through this interview, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. Uh, So I grew up in Australia, as we've already established, and I completed my Bachelor of Arts degree at the University of Canberra. Uh, I took human resources classes as part of my degree, but I really wasn't sure if I wanted a career in marketing or a career in human resources. So when I finished my degree, I applied for jobs in both fields. And thankfully, I was offered an HR coordinator role, and I've continued to be passionate about and challenged by my career in human resources for the past 25 years. I spent the first six years of my career in HR and retail organizations in Australia, and then I was offered the opportunity to move to America when I was working for the Walt Disney Company in Australia. And I told my family it would provide me with great experience and that I'd go for one to two years. Uh, That was 19 years ago. So apparently I tell terrible lies and you just trust what I say, but please continue to listen in. Um, I didn't set out to have a career exclusively in retail, but that's just how it's turned out. And I've worked for organizations from $2 billion in scale to $16 billion in revenue uh, with employee populations from 15,000 to 150,000 employees. So in my current role, as you said, I lead human resources, communications, and enterprise transformation. And then I've also been lucky enough to have the opportunity to live and work in Melbourne, Los Angeles, San Francisco, London, and now New York. And I've had the opportunity to travel extensively working with and leading teams globally, which has been a really rich and rewarding experience. So, Leah, looking back over your career and the path that you've taken, um, what job or jobs would you say really shaped you as uh, as a leader uh, in terms of your team leadership style and, and approach? Yeah, absolutely. So I had managed people from very early in my career. So really from the first few years of my career, I always had direct reports. But for the first 10 years of my career, I had teams that were all of five or less of size. And then uh, about the 10-year mark, I took a role leading a team of 35 people based in six different countries. And I think that's the role that really shaped me as a leader. So what I learned from that role really was that managing at scale across multiple countries, it taught me the need to be super organized and out ahead of things, really had to have a different structure and a different way of thinking of things. And it was also really critical that I have strong listening skills and really effective verbal and written communication skills. So working with a team where English was a second language for most meant that I had to utilize multiple multiple communication vehicles and communicate consistently and frequently to get buy-in to the vision and strategy. 
So that was a role that really opened me up and taught me a lot of different things. So today I currently lead a team of 55 and to this day I'm very structured and planful and super organized in my time management and team communications and that's really something I learned in that role. That's fantastically I think uh you know, I've done some work with global teams with Brian, and it's interesting. Some of the things I find people struggle with are very pragmatic and practical. Uh, things like uh, the time difference and how do you account for that so you're not making people in China call in at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, to a conference call meeting. Anything that you've found with global teams that, that tends to be a sticking point or an issue that may be overlooked? Well, I really think when you manage a global team that the onus is on you as a leader to extend yourself to the team versus the other way around. So I always really tried to be very mindful about the time zone that they were in um, and manage the calendar and structure in a way that didn't put them out of their daily routines and out of their obligations, et cetera, within the time zone that they were in. And sometimes that meant I had to be out of my, my, put my obligations aside, but that's, that's part of the role of being a leader. <laughs> Um, so I think, as I said, having that structure, being really planful, knowing what your governance structure is, how many touch bases are you going to have? Do you have them weekly? Do you have them daily? Do you have team meetings? When you have multiple time zones, do you split into multiple groups? How do you come together as a team? They're all things you have to think through and plan into and then maintain that structure. So the, the, the key, I think, of managing a global team is to figure out what works and then really consistently maintain it versus making changes constantly to the structure. It's terrific advice. And, it, you know, I think you get, it really do think it gets overlooked. I, I remember being on a call with somebody who was uh, in China and had to be constantly adjusting her schedule to her boss's uh, time zone. And, and it just led to a feeling of uh, being disrespected and just sort of not even being empathetic to what her experience was. And I think that approach of servant leadership really goes far in that kind of environment. It's hard enough working halfway around the world from where your boss is or the rest of the team, but you know, when they don't even think about your time and what that governance looks like, I think that um, it can really harm the relationship. So I think that's a great approach and a real servant leader approach, Leah. And I agree with you, Mary, like when you're disconnected from the mothership, as you would say, yeah. so your remote location, then you already have that sense of being disconnected. And so your job as the leader is to make people feel connected. And that's why I think it's important to extend yourself to that location versus the other way around. Yeah, that's true. I love that. That's terrific. And creating that sense of belonging. I mean, sometimes that gets triggered with just the unintentional you know, decisions that we're making. I really like being thoughtful about the governance, as you said. So Leah, when you think about, uh, you've had so many interesting experiences and to your point, you know, changed vastly how you were leading, who you were leading. How do you think you've changed as a team leader over time? How, and when you look back on your leadership journey, how are you different today than when you started down this path? Yeah, so I think the only joy of getting older is the time and experience <laughs> has given me much greater perspective. So the thing that's changed most for me as a leader is that I don't sweat the small stuff as much as I used to earlier in my career. And that doesn't mean that I don't have a strong attention to detail. As my CEO would say, retail is detail. Yeah. Um, it just means that I can differentiate more easily between what's really important, what's nice to do, and what can wait. And I think that's a really important skill to have as a leader, because when you're in a leadership role, 
you will always have more work to do than there are hours in the day. So being able to prioritize and, and pick what's going to be most important is really, really key. I think not only for results, which is absolutely critical to have that narrow focus, but I'm, I'm also noticing in my coaching work uh, for burnout. You know, some of, some of my clients that are telling me they're feeling burnt out, I realize they're trying to do everything and everything has equal importance. Well, it's, that's just a recipe to, you know, make yourself miserable at work, but also to not get things done. So, yeah, I think that's a great point around focus and prioritization. Really critical. Well, and I think like some of your clients, I was definitely that person earlier in my career. <laughs> I, I can absolutely say from experience that uh, I took it all on. I felt like I had to do everything. I worked 70 to 80 hours a week. Uh, and I, I did end up burning myself out. And I don't think that um, people might have appreciated me as a person. But as a leader, by the time you get to that burnout phase, people can't connect with where you're at. Um, and so that was a lesson I had to learn that that you feel like you have to do that to build your career, but it's not what keeps you uh, in a successful leadership role. It just won't work. Yeah. Sometimes you have to learn a lesson the hard way. You do. <laughs> Leah, what is the, the best uh, team that you've ever been on and, and kind of what made it the best from, from your perspective? So I think, you know, over the course of a career, you have both good and bad experiences on teams. And you do learn from both. So I think you can't really truly appreciate being on a great team and what those qualities are if you also haven't been on a team where it didn't quite work for you. Yeah. So I think that the most important thing in really working with a great team or being on a best team is finding a team that fits you. And by that, I mean, so for me, for example, it meant finding a team where uh, the skills that I bring are truly valued. So that's what they're looking for, what I have to offer. I think it's also made up of people that you respect and that you can learn from and enjoy working with and a team that has a shared vision of success. So I'm very lucky and I feel very grateful to have found that in my current role in organization with the CEO and senior leadership team that I work with and with my HR team, that we have strong alignment around what we're here to do, that we work with people, we work hard, but we work with people that we learn from and we enjoy every day. Uh, and everyone feels that what they bring to the table is valued. There's nothing better, nothing better than having a team that's aligned and, and winning together. Leah, when you look back uh, with 2020 hindsight, can you tell us about a mistake that you've made? You know, Brian, and I really believe in uh, learning from others' mistakes instead of having to make those mistakes yourself. So can you help our listeners by uh, sharing what's something that you look back was a mistake and that helped you in leading teams or in leadership in general? Oh, gosh, only one mistake? <laughs> I think I can think a lot. Um, but I think the the the... the the one that I would highlight is that I've, I've been consistently told over my career that I can be hard to work for because I have very high expectations of myself and of my team. So patience is not necessarily one of my better virtues and my frustration can show when we aren't delivering what I expect. So that's something I've become really aware of. And so I've learned really two important lessons, which is to ensure that you hire people who are clear on the goals and what's expected and that they're excited by that. That's something that they want to sign up for and what they want to do. So really having people who, who are in it with you 
is very, very important. But the second thing is to be transparent with team members about your faults as a leader and then genuinely give them permission to call you on your behavior when needed. So I've never met a perfect leader. I've worked with really great leaders over the course of my career and I've been really lucky, but there is no one who's perfect. And so I think it's really important to be self-aware and open to feedback. Um, But that's, you have to give people permission to really come and give it to you. And then you have to be open to hearing it when they, when they do. Uh, It can't just be words. And that's something that I think, you know, I've had to learn because that trait in me about those high expectations, I've learned that that's not something I'm really capable or willing of to change. And so I, I have to learn behaviors around that to make, to find the right people who fit with me as well as um, giving them permission if, if things are not uh, where they need to be to give me that feedback. You know, maybe if I could dig in or probe a little bit kind of specific to culture. I remember 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I was doing a pretty big training uh, with an entire operation, but I guess one level of managers within the operation uh, in Shenzhen, and we were talking, and I was explaining the concept of upward feedback and and um, being based in Minneapolis, the importance of humility as a leader, asking your people for feedback and getting candid feedback, and that completely did not ring at all with this particular group because, as I understood it in China, the the practice of giving open, candid, constructive feedback to one's boss and or the boss asking just doesn't happen. It just didn't work. And it really challenged my assumption of what good leadership is, good followership is, what good teamwork looks like. I was curious in your transition and leading uh, you know, uh, teams across the globe, is there a mistake, um, an assumption that wasn't correct, a shift? specific to culture that that stands out that you had to make? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Brian. You know, um, I'm an Aussie, and so being very direct and communicating directly and dealing with confrontation and conflict is pretty natural to in my culture and, and how I grew up but I find everyone else that's that's not necessarily the case and there's a large variances across different countries and cultures. So you can't assume that they're going that that you know, people who work for you are going to operate the way that you're used to or the way that you think uh, they should. So you really have to meet them where they're at. I think that's what I learned over time is I still encourage people to give feedback, but I also know there'll be some cultures where they're super hesitant to do so. Um, I've worked in China, I've worked in Korea, I've worked in India, I've worked in Singapore, I've worked across all sorts of different places around the world. Um, And to respect those cultural differences, I think you have to be really able to pick up on cues, really listen intently and ask a lot of questions of people. So when you see those things, the way you get the feedback is by asking questions. They're not going to necessarily volunteer it to you, but you can still get the feedback. You just have to, you have to work a little harder for it versus waiting for somebody to just give it to you. I remember at the end of that session, as we always do, we would ask, you know, what went well and what could we have proved in this experience? And, you know, crickets, no one said anything. And typically I would have been, okay, you know, I understand you may be hesitant, but it's really okay. We want to improve. Just give me one small thing. It could be food, it could be the shoes that we wore, it could be PowerPoint. What's one thing we could do better? Seriously, 80 people, nothing. Couldn't get, I had to just give up and move on and 
kind of get it around <laughs> around and about in a different way and just very much had to shift and I, I think kind of what I realized and I think what you just said is that um, we have to adapt we have to change because it's 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 not going to happen for for us to expect otherwise yeah and I think an example I'd be interested Brian like when you've got a large group like that you've got no chance in my mind and and yeah. and hard it certainly would be hard under any circumstances yeah one you might have a better shot or if you'd split people into teams and workshopped it you might have gotten some feedback you know yeah. I'm sure you've had those experiences over time too but it is that that moment where you're like, okay, I could ask 50 questions, I'm still going to get nothing. Right, right. I love the thought of uh, meeting folks where they are and reading cues, you know, really, really important, you know, to kind of pick up on those subtle behaviors. And the other thing you said I thought that was really meaningful is you don't want to give up on your strengths, um, but yet you're adaptable if, if it's, you know, there's something that you can adjust for folks. So not letting go of those high standards, but still being very open to feedback and creating a safe space. Um, it's something I'm really finding with leaders is a hesitancy to give feedback upwards. And it can be really challenging and scary. And so I do think you're right that it's contingent on the leader to make that a very safe space um, because it's in our best interest as leaders that we're able to get that feedback. That's the only thing that's going to protect our results and our success. So it's really a selfish um, thing to do if you think about it, but you've got to make it safe for people or they just won't speak up. It's too intimidating. I really like that thought of reading cues and meeting them where they are. And I've also thought that, uh, you know, we talk about strengths and weaknesses often in kind of absolute terms, but to me, they're, they're really relative, right? Well, I mean, you, you can have a, a towering talent and strength of being direct and, and, and being able to directly address and sort of this conflict. But if you demonstrate that in the wrong context, in the wrong situation, you could argue, well, really, is that a strength? If it doesn't work in that moment, in that situation, it's certainly relative. Yeah. Yeah. So shifting to talking about hiring and, and bringing people onto your team, the organization, um, what do you look for to hire kind of both good team players and performers uh, and outstanding performers? And, and how do you balance the two? How do you balance um, wanting people to be great team players and to collaborate in cross-functional settings, but also be outstanding in what they do? So I have probably, I don't, I don't know if this will be an answer you've heard before, it's a very basic but fundamental thing that I look for in interviewing and, and hiring candidates, and that's common sense. I think it's really one of the most underrated qualities yeah. uh, that we can do behavioral interviewing. We could do all sorts of things, and I'm, I'm not saying there isn't a place for that, and there's, there's a lot that you need to learn in an interview process, but really I'm looking for whether somebody has good judgment and that common sense because I know if they do, then they usually make good decisions It'll both reflect in their performance as well as how they operate as part of a team. It gives them that flexibility and adaptability to both read a situation and then and then understand, oh, instead of just blindly moving forward, I might ask a question here because common sense dictates that I should do so. How do you get at that? Because I've always, I, I get that and I understand, but I've always found that common sense is often defined differently. It's kind of in the eye of the beholder and what I might define as common sense, you might see differently. So uh, without divulging your secret questions or, or assessment uh, tricks, what, what, what do you look for in terms of patterns to assess yeah. good judgment and common sense? I love the word judgment. I think that's as, probably as much as what we're describing as any. 
So I ask a lot of questions and yeah. people probably hate coming and interviewing with me because I don't do an interview that's less than an hour and a half, you know, because I really feel like to get at that, you, you have to have a really good conversation with somebody. And that's both about getting to know them and their background. But as they describe the experience they have, then I ask for pragmatic examples. What did, what, you know, what did you do in that situation? Tell me the situation where it didn't go the way that you wanted to. A lot of those are the same in terms of behavioral interviewing questions, but there, there's, there's taking the things they tell you about their experience, what they've done, what they like to do, what motivates them as a person, and then trying to glean from them how that showed up in the workplace or in the past choices that they've made because I often find through that I can get a pretty good sense of how they exhibit, you know, how they use judgment and how they apply common sense in those situations. Now, Mary, I don't know if you would agree, but I've, 90 minutes, that, that's a lot. I mean, relative, it seems like most people do 45 minutes, an hour. One executive I know did it in 15 minutes, but... Uh, tell me why 90 minutes. I think that's fantastic. Uh, but, yeah, I don't believe I've tried to outlaw when I, when I came into this role, people were doing 30 minute interviews and really? that's not an interview. That's just a, like, yeah. Oh, great. This is a person who can string three sentences together and they're breathing. I should hire them. Yeah. You know, it, it's more like, do I like this person versus are they qualified for the job and are they a good fit for the role and for the culture and for our company? Um, and I think to really get at all of those pieces, it does take time. It, it takes time. So I've, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. I can get a pretty good sense in most interviews of probably in the first 10 or 15 minutes about what I think of a candidate. But over the course of 90 minutes, as I really probe and test and prove out what I might initially, what my initial perception was or my, what I might have thought, I can often get to a different place. And I think if you don't take that time and you stay at that surface level, then it can, you can make mistakes. And I, I see it happen all the time in the workplace. The other thing I love about that answer is I think it helps to overcome any unconscious bias. You know, I honestly, in a 30 minute interview, probably all you're assessing is your own bias, right? I mean, that's just, it's not enough time to really drill down and, and be both skeptical and to check, you know, your assumptions. But I, so I think that may help you say, yes, I like this person because they reflect everything that I think is important um, externally. About, uh, testing it, right? That you you have an initial assessment or assumption, but then the additional time allows for prompts and questions that test your and and really push and challenge. So you're thinking very critically. Yeah, and you really need that time not only for you to ask questions and figure things out, but I always try and save at least fifteen to twenty minutes of an interview for the candidate to ask questions of me, because I learn as much through that what kind of questions they might ask me. Um, you know, sometimes I know candidates will come in prepared with questions, but can people adapt in the moment? What do they, what's really important that they've heard throughout the day? What do they want to test with me? Um, and sometimes, you know, candidates will be like, no, I have no questions. And that tells me something too. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, you know, really saving quality time, not just to, to probe the candidate, but to let the pro candidate probe you is really important to finding that right fit, uh, right organizational fit. When I was interviewing a lot, and I, um, I agree how important that process is. I mean, you're going to add somebody to your team. It can change the whole dynamic. It can change results. And you, one person can make a huge impact on your results in a, in a team. And so I, I'm with you, Leah. Whenever somebody would say they didn't have any questions, I'd be extremely concerned. Um, yeah. You know, I get people are nervous, but it, it can just indicate, like, you've got this chance to talk with a senior leader 
if there's nothing you're curious about, that's a real problem. Um, but I used to love it when people would ask me even personal questions, like what keeps you here? Um, what do you not like about your job? What do you love about your job? Even, you know, asking a senior leader those questions, I think it's fine. And it, it tell, told me that they were curious about the role. They were curious about the culture and the company. So it's not like it always has to be, you know, what's your EBITDA performance? You know, sometimes people come in with these scripted questions that were intended to show how intelligent they were or how business savvy they were. I sort of like the more um, personal and real authentic questions that I could tell they actually were curious and that meant something to them. Absolutely. Leah, you said you've never seen a perfect leader, but I know you've worked, which is probably correct. But <laughs> I know you've worked with some great leaders. Anybody that you could highlight for us that we can learn from and, and, a great leader that you had the chance to interact with and what is it that you admired in them or that you saw in them that you thought was worthy of um, them being labeled a great leader? Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I, I really respect people's privacy, so I'm not, not necessarily one to call out people by name, but I really have had the great fortune to work for multiple great leaders, you know, in my career. And uh, as I've said, you know, certainly there are no such things as perfect leaders. So everyone has their areas of opportunities, but I think, some common qualities that I saw in great leaders was that first, the best team leaders really know how to hire exceptional talent and surround themselves with people who make them even better. So the best leaders are not afraid to hire people who have better skills than they do or who could succeed them at a point in time. You know, it's like I, I often look for people and I'm like, I'd love for you to put me out of a job. Nothing would make me happier. <laughs> So finding those people and creating that bench strength and creating people who have those skills, I think the best team leaders all look for that great talent and don't find it as a threat. They only see that they're going to stand higher on the shoulders of those below them. And so they want the best people below them so they can stand as high as possible. Um, I think some other things that I've seen in great team leaders would be uh, that they are clear communicators who rally people to their vision. So they, they can really crisply and clearly communicate that. Um, I would say the best leaders I've worked for are authentic and that authenticity inspires other people. And then the last thing I would say is that the best team leaders I've worked with know when to give team members freedom and autonomy and then know when to take the reins and get their hands dirty to manage the details for successful outcomes. So they don't always just stay high and they're not always micromanaging, but they know how to flex between those two things to get the best out of their teams. That sounds like somebody I'd like to work for. Yeah. <laughs> what about, um, can you talk a little bit about how you can incorporate values into building um, uh, great team culture? Maybe work you've done as you came into your recent organization and how you build shared values and, and change a, a culture. Sure. So I believe that your team culture should reflect what's important at your organization as well as who you are as a leader. So I think to really, you know, engage and retain a great team around you, you need the combination of both. So as an example, our company that I work at is very results driven. So to instill this in my team, I hold quarterly town hall meetings and we review our goals, we celebrate the progress we've made, and we reinforce what needs to be delivered in the upcoming quarters. So we're very clear and focused on what needs to be delivered. But then as an individual leader, 
I believe it's really important for my team to hear about the work and accomplishments from those who own it on the team. So I often showcase leaders at the director and manager level, and I have them present at the town hall. So versus just me being a talking head, I want the people who are delivering and owning the work within my team to be showcased in front of their peers and the people that they work with. And then I also believe just personally that that my team really values feeling connected to me as a leader. So as Mary pointed out earlier in terms of some of those personal connections, I will often share photos or stories of important life events. So last year I got married, this year I had a nephew born in Australia. Those are things I often incorporate into the town hall because the feedback tells me that Staying aligned on the work is really important. People come to work to do a good job and they want to know what's expected of them, but they stay because they feel connected to the people they work with and they enjoy the work environment. So having that moment where, as I said, like in a town hall meeting, they can get clear on the work we've delivered and what we still have to do, but then they get to see and hear from their peers and then they also see me, not just as a leader, but also as a human being kind of rounds out that balance. And and that's how I try and incorporate and build team culture. It's a really great way to emphasize values is, you know, your life and being open and vulnerable enough to share it. I think that's fantastic. You know, that kind of brings me to cultural differences. And you've uh, grew up in Australia, you've lived in London, you've lived in Los Angeles, very different places. (laughs) Now in New Jersey, you've led global teams. Any thoughts, Leah, about cultural differences that you've been able to identify uh, through your lens and through your experiences? Yeah, I actually think we've touched on some of them. So, you know, my family jokes actually that I sound more American these days than actually than as an Aussie, but my American colleagues still certainly make fun of me on my accent. So I must still sound a little bit Australian. But the biggest difference I know uh, from my culture, and I touched on this earlier, is that Aussies tend to be much more direct and less conflict avoidant than I find here in the American culture. Um, And that's very different also then from other places in the world. We talked a little bit about the Asian culture and, you know, definitely get things out of people there, but you're not, you're going to do it in a very different way than you would in Australia or here in America. And just to clarify, you're saying that even living in and around New York, New Jersey on the East Coast, Oh, absolutely. I'm still still saying that. Yeah. Uh, so for me, as I said, I really think that dealing with conflict is healthy in creating high-performing and effective teams. If you can't have the conversation and talk about things, then I don't know how you get aligned and how you deliver the results that you need to. But as the head of HR, I have to tell you that a lot of my time still is spent with leaders who are seeking coaching and counseling from me on how to get comfortable with managing or confronting conflict in their teams or with their colleagues. So it's just not something that's as natural, I think, in this culture um, around people definitely want to get along in the work environment. And if something's a little bit off, they struggle with how to have that conversation. Um, and that's, that's probably the biggest cultural difference I see from where I grew up and what's, what's natural in my background than uh, what I see here in the workplace in America. And I have been here 19 years now. So, and across multiple different locations, but I still find it's a common theme no matter where I am. 
Well, you know, it's so interesting because uh, here's something that you grew up with and it's part of who you are, your ability to be direct and to handle conflict and um, to give a tough message when needed, I would probably say. And I, I think it's really interesting that instead of having to adapt entirely, you've been able to use that as a strength. And I think that's interesting as people think about global roles um, that, you know, you'll bring some things with you that stand out um, and that help you stand out in that culture and that may, you know, support your success. It's not like you'll have to change everything. You may have to adapt, but you can also hold on to those strengths. Absolutely, you can, Mary. But I think it is that important as what I've learned over the course of my career is that adaptability. So as I mentioned earlier, those high expectations and, and uh, you know, that people can think I'm tough to work for because I will have the conversation. I expect to be able to, to just, you know, directly deal with what's going on and not everyone's comfortable with that. So I, I've become more aware of that as I've gone on in my career. And I have to make sure, as I said, that I am uh, more open and making sure that people can be comfortable in their own way uh, in approaching me. But my team knows I only have two rules. There's only two rules that you don't ever break if you work on my team. And the first is don't take me by surprise. So uh, unfortunately, as a CHRO, surprise, CHRO, surprises are really good. But, yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm like, just don't take me by surprise. To tell me early, we can deal with anything, but, but tell me. Um, and the second thing is I can't fix something I don't know. So don't assume I know. And I think if you get into a senior leadership role often, you know, particularly if, if it's someone who doesn't work directly for you and you don't see them every day, they can assume a lot about what you do or don't know is going on in your organization. And so I try and make sure that everyone understands that no matter what role you hold on the team, that one, you can come and see me. And if there is a concern or something on your mind, don't assume I know. <laughs> and I can't fix it if I don't know. So we have to be able to have that conversation. And that's the, I just ask for a shot. Yeah. Like if, that I haven't done the right thing and they want to leave, that's up to them. But I want, I want the opportunity to try and address the situation. And those, those rules are making your values explicit. Simple, right. What about um, for those that are listening and interested in being, you know, CHRO or chief people officer in the future, not next year, but maybe five to 10 years out? Um, what advice would you give, suggestions or thoughts in terms of how you see HR changing and evolving? Yeah. So I think I've always believed that you really need to understand the business and be a business leader whose area of expertise is really defining and delivering the talent strategy. So our business is talent, but we have to be able to apply those strategies to drive a business outcome and to drive a business strategy. So I think it wasn't uncommon when I look at the, the profession at large, in the last 10 years or so, it hasn't been uncommon to see business leaders with operational experience move into HR roles. So either as a rotational experience on their development path uh, and succession planning, or just to give a different perspective to the HR function. But I think what I'm seeing more of in recent times is more HR leaders being tapped to bring their perspective and expertise to operational functions. So I'm seeing some more HR leaders assume COO roles or chief administrative officer roles, or in my case, for example, I lead enterprise transformation in addition to leading human resources. And I think that's going to be more the way of the future as well. There'll still always be a need for a chief people officer or a CHRO role, but I think that those who are business oriented 
may be tapped to do broader things than just the HR portfolio of work. We're struck by how few CHROs are promoted to CEO. Um, I mean, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head recently in the past three or five years. I mean, and to come from other areas of the business. Do you have any thoughts? I guess, oh, you too, Marion, why that, why that doesn't happen? It seems, seems odd given how important talent in culture is. Yeah, I think the Achilles heel of the of CHROs and chief people officers that I know is that what we bring is great organizational perspective, talent perspective, change management, org design, lots of those components that are really important in a, in a CEO role. But the Achilles heel is the finance side. So really having that depth of expertise around the P&L and the financials of the business. I think to be a business leader in HR, you still have to understand it. But I would even say for myself, it's not that I feel like I've got enough skills to have a CFO reporting to me, as an example. So while you can always surround yourself with people who have these things, having that depth of knowledge on the P&L, or depending on your business, I work for a retail business, I, I might love and appreciate product, but I'm not a merchant. And so it depends on what's core to the business. And unless you're a business where talent is truly the core engine of the business, I think it becomes hard for CHROs to succeed into the CEO role because you haven't, you haven't had those core experiences. It really speaks to a, having you know, a career path that zigzags through the organization as much as possible if someone has that ambition, I think. And um, what I loved about what you said, Leah, is, and I've seen this in the, the very talented CHROs that I know, see themselves as business leaders with a specialty in talent and people. And that's just what you described. And I, I think that leads to a lot of credibility and to ensure that the solutions that you're coming up with and the direction and the focus all align to deliver business results. And I think that's a great map. Um, towards both your personal success, but the company's success as well. You know, you've spent all your um, career in retail, as you said, didn't really plan it that way. Like most of us who have worked in retail, uh, it's been a time of just tremendous change and headwinds and uh, I'd say turmoil. So any thoughts about how do you create an engaged and aligned team? How do you reduce the noise for teams given that retail's undergone such tremendous change and is constantly changing, you know, every day, every week? Absolutely. And I think the best retailers I've worked for have a multi-year strategy that they stick to. So they, they still have to pivot daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly to adapt to changes in the landscape and what's going on in the business. But they always have that North Star. And I think that's really important. So I think to keep things aligned and focus, you have to be able to adapt in the short term, in the here and now to the challenges that are going on in your business. But you need to stay focused on that mid to long term as well and know where you're going. Uh, because if you work particularly in a retail organization, and I have worked in some of these, I won't name, um, if you work in an organization that does not have that strategy anchor, it can feel really schizophrenic. And like you're chasing your tail. So you're just on that little mouse wheel, running, 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 running all the time. And you're not really sure where you're running to. Um, so I think having that, as I said, strategy inc is really key. I think that's really profound. I'm thinking of at least two organizations. I know probably you're, you know, you would agree as well. And that's just exacerbated when you have new CEOs coming in every two years. 
and then they are bringing new people in and then they're going because of the pressures and the board expectations. It just, wow. Just having a coaching conversation about that yesterday in terms of what the, the their person's true north is during you know, the next six months is a new CEO and chief digital officer, potentially chief merchant comes in for the third time over the past six years. Um, let's talk about kind of you more personally and um, don't like to use the, the phrase balance, work-life balance, because not many great leaders I know are balanced per se, but in terms of just overall life well-being, um, how do you, what have you learned works or doesn't work to just have overall high quality of life, um, kind of all different domains and prevent burnout? Uh, so that you don't just uh, get fried up and you're spending all your time at work and you know, over time becoming less effective and less engaged. What have you learned works for you? So for me, and I've probably overused this word during this conversation and said it 50 times, but planning is key. So I plan a full year ahead and I need to do that because when you're a CHRO, you have to plan around board meetings. So there are only certain windows of time during the year that I could take a vacation, for example. Um, why? Why board? Why do you have to plan around board meetings? I mean, I think I, I kind of understand, but I'm curious kind of concretely why, why those are so important for you. Sure. So as the CHRO, I'm responsible and run the comp compensation committee meetings. So each, uh, I have six of those a year, and, and that's my responsibility to run. But I also, in my organization, every single board meeting, and we have five of those a year, um, I provide an organizational update. So, and I also lead enterprise transformation. So I'm always telling the board about what's going on from that perspective as well. So there, I know there isn't a board meeting that I'm not going to have content that I need to present. Every single board meeting between the compensation committee and the board meeting, I will have content that's important to keep our board on the journey of what's going on in our organization. So there are anchor dates that I always have to plan around and I have I already know the board calendar for all of next year. And so, as I said, I plan my year ahead. Wow. And I think it's really important to take vacations. I take breaks. It's super important for me in particular because to go and see my family, it's not like I can, you know, get in the car and drive two hours down the road. Unfortunately, it's a 27-hour flight to get home and, and to go see my family. Uh, and uh, my husband's from India, and so his family's in another country too. So, for us to actually see our families, we really have to plan into that um, and make sure we've got those windows of time to go and spend with the people that we love. Um, so I have, I take all of my vacation every year. So I plan ahead. I know the exact amount of vacation I have and I plan to take all of it and make sure that that happens in the windows of time when I know I can actually take breaks. Um, and then... Fully unplug, like uh, people have different approaches and styles. Some fully unplug for one or two or all vacations, some check in a day, what, what works for you? Yeah, honestly, I don't, I don't think it's realistic in these roles for anyone to fully unplug. Okay. Um, I certainly haven't found that role where you can do that, but I'm very disciplined in what being plugged in means. So everybody knows that if there's an emergency, they can call me. Otherwise, I will check email twice a day, once in the morning and once at the end of the day. And if it needs a response, I'll respond. And if it doesn't need a response, they won't hear from me. <laughs> So that's, that's the way I manage things on vacation. And then day in, day out, I'm also really disciplined. You know, for me, I've learned over time that uh, the key to being my best self is 
staying physically fit and healthy as well as getting enough sleep. So some people pride themselves on, I can only sleep four hours a night and I'm still really productive. I'm not one of those people. Um, I really value getting a good night's sleep because I find when I'm not well rested that I'm super cranky. So I, uh, I manage my calendar in a way where I get up and I exercise early every morning and I make sure I get to bed at a reasonable hour. And that just gives me the stamina to do my job. Terrific. Yeah, I think that kind of thoughtfulness about self-care, it's just as important as strategy work in my book. You know, I just think you, you have to, sh- in these big roles, you know, you're making really important decisions and people are looking to you. You're under a microscope. It's so critical that you're healthy emotionally, physically, however you get there. And, and you're right. I think uh, those are, when we think we can get by on a few hours sleep, I think we're fooling ourselves. <laughs> those around us would probably say, no, you're not pulling it off. <laughs> and I think those rituals and routines, I mean, while in and of themselves, they're healthy and valuable in terms of exercise and sleep, those provide kind of a buffer or uh, to the mm-hmm. stress, just they can be kind of soothing in and of themselves. So Absolutely. Yeah. Great. All right. We're going to end with some quick, quick questions, uh, Leah. So these are our rapid fire we like to enter, end our interviews with. So tell us, what is the best part of your job? Uh, I love leading change across our organization, and there's a lot of change. <laughs> Terrific. And what's the most challenging part? Uh, staying a step ahead in leading the change across the organization because the pace is really pretty rapid. <laughs> I had a feeling that was going to be it. That's great. What's one thing you're most proud of, of accomplishing professionally last year, Leah? Uh, I'd say implementing Workday and changing our global HR operating model. It was a really big change for the company. Uh, but we did it pretty seamlessly and we've had really high business adoption and compliance. And I'm super proud of my team for that. That is fantastic. I suspect you'll get a bunch of phone calls after this because uh, not everybody has gone through that kind of change easily. So I, I really admire that how the children's place and how you led the team to do that so yes. well. I can't say that I've ever heard work day <laughs> great accomplishment in the same sentence from anybody else. So that's, uh, that's awesome. That's huge. Leah, what's one thing you're working on to continue to grow to be a better leader? So I'm trying to be more mindful of giving positive feedback and recognition. So I know as myself, I'm just not a person who needs recognition. It's not what motivates me. But I do have to remember that it's really important to others. And so for those who need it, I try and make sure to give them that positive reinforcement that they need. Terrific. Can you tell us about some great advice that you've received? Uh, Best advice I ever received was don't spend money that you don't have. (laughs) That is terrific advice. That's terrific advice. Have you ever received advice that you thought that's really just bad? Yes. Uh, So I was once told that I should try to be less intense in order to be well-liked so that I could really grow my career. (laughs) (laughs) That would not have worked. Right. (laughs) <laughs> such a great I'm so glad you shared that though because yeah. it really is you know it's so important to seek feedback and you were so um articulate in describing how to do that especially across cultural different cultural teams but you're right you've got to sometimes take it with a grain of salt and not use it if it doesn't align with your personal values and what you know will make you successful that's a, just a terrific answer Leah what's your favorite thing to do in your time away from work uh, travel. And 
luckily I do love to travel since, as I said, my family's in Australia, my husband is <laughs> in India, and we have a vacation home in Costa Rica. So pretty much every chance we get, we get on a plane and go somewhere else in the world. Thank God you're not fear of, have a fear of flying. I think that <laughs> wouldn't work for you. That wouldn't work. Yeah. And finally, Leah, as you think back, I know it's been a little while, but if you were looking at yourself when you graduated from college and you think about your career and where you've gone, what advice would you give yourself, that new person graduating from college? Yeah, um, I'm lucky enough we run an internship program here every year, so I get to talk to a lot of college graduates and we hire those people into our company. Um, but I think the thing I say to them that is if your goal is to build a successful career, because a lot of the people I speak to they want to do great work, but they also are looking ahead and like, how, what will it take to get to a more senior level? Or how do I build a career over time? And I, I, what I would say to them is it's important that you find what you love to do and are good at doing. Mm. You need that combination of something that you really enjoy and finding what your strengths are and how to apply them. Um, because it's like, I might want to be a great pop star, but if I can't sing, that's not really going to be ever something that I can do. So. Finding, as I said, what you love to do, but also what you're good at to build a career, I think is really important. Terrific advice. I wish uh, you would have been around when I graduated college. That's terrific advice. (laughs) Well, uh, Leah, any last comments or advice? This has been terrific. We've learned a ton from anything that you want to add here as we wrap up on leading high performance teams. So I think the last thing I'd say, and I hate to be so boring and pragmatic, but I think that consistency is really key to high-performing teams. So one of the things that I think can be overlooked is that you really have to deliver the day-to-day basics flawlessly, and that requires a foundation of repeatable, scalable processes. So I think some leaders can get really enamored with the cool strategies and what's next and what we're going to be doing, but if you overlook the basics, then you won't have the trust and the credibility to deliver those strategies. So we all want to get to the cool strategies, but delivering flawlessly, consistently, day in, day out for what your function is accountable for is the bedrock of being able to to do more in any organization. Very well said. Thank you so much. And it's not surprising that that's led to great success for you and the team at the Children's Place. Awesome. Yeah. Some some great nuggets from this uh, podcast, 90 minute interviews, plan around the board meetings, consistent, repeatable processes day to day. It's that's the mentor that says strategic planning is actually strategic execution. Don't ever forget that. It's terrific. Leah, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and insight. I know that our audience will really appreciate it. And to our listeners, we'll catch you next time with the Teen Gurus. Thank you. Bye-bye.